The imposter syndrome is not from a lack of understanding ourselves or where we've been or who we are and that other people don't understand that. It's the judgment that we place on our experiences and on our choices that make us feel like we're unworthy. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome. And ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a treat. I got John Rogers in. And if you don't know who John is, you're going to find out really quick. This is going to be one of the shorter episodes because I want to leave you guys wanting for more. We're going to have to get John back in here. But, John, how are things in Utah, man? Man, they are. It's cold. I will give you that. I came out to your event in North Carolina and came back to about six inches of snow. And I thought to myself, North Carolina is the better choice at this point. Well, I keep trying to get you to move out, man, but you know, you, you won't come. It's okay. Eventually we'll get you out here and we'll give you more excuses to come hang out. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming to the Red Pill experience. That meant a lot. And then hanging out with us at the powwow, uh, folks are still raving about the presentation you gave us. I mean, I feel like it was four hours of fire. It was probably only two and a half, but you just packed so much good stuff in that some people walked out saying, I'm rethinking my entire life. <laughs> and how did I do so many things so wrong? So awesome. with that said, they're probably like, what are these guys talking about? Well, for those of you who haven't been to a powwow, you probably need to come find out what's going on. But what's your background, man? Like, How'd you learn this stuff? And maybe we could talk about what the stuff is wrapped up in that. Yeah. So I have two overarching principles in life. The first one is you go 100% in any direction and God will provide the course corrections. So as I go over my background, you're like, how did you go from one thing to the next? Like it doesn't add up. And I attribute everything to everything I do. I just go 100% at it. And then all the course corrections kind of provided themselves. So I have always been passionate about business. I used to say that I love business more than most people love their children. I now have three children and I feel bad saying that, but I do still believe I see the way other people love their children. And I'm like, I love business more than other people love their children, but I don't love business more than I love my children. And it was like innate in me when I was a little kid. My dad was an author. He wrote a book that didn't sell very many copies. It was super dense about the life of Benjamin Franklin called The Art of Virtue. And when I was like an eight-year-old kid, I wanted to make some money to go buy some stuff. I'm like, I'm just going to go door-to-door selling with my dad's books. So I grabbed a wheelbarrow and went around the neighborhood. And in a weekend, I sold $500 worth of my dad's books. And I swear to you, that was more than he sold in a month, maybe a year. I don't know. But as an eight-year-old, I'm like, okay, I can do this. And it just kind of grew from there. My passion for business grew from there. When I was 24, me and three of my buddies competed in a business plan competition, ended up winning that, ended up increasing the valuation of that company to around 10 million before I exited. And then from there, 
I went on kind of a mini journey trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and decided I wanted to go to law school. So I was 27 years old, studied for about a month, took the LSAT, was lucky enough to score in the 99th percentile and ended up going to Harvard. I always say that I was middle-aged and unexceptional, and so they counted it as diversity and let me in. So it was a blast and learned so much. And during my third year, I, during my second year, I sucked up to one of my professors who ran an investment bank down at Wall Street. So he invited me during my third year to go intern down there. So on Mondays and Tuesdays, I was a law school student. On Tuesday nights, I flew down to New York. And Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I was an investment banker. And then I'd fly back either Friday night or Saturday night, depending on how much work I had, and then kind of go through that whole process again. And then after that law school, I just decided I wanted to actually try being a lawyer. So I was a private equity and hedge fund lawyer down in Dallas for a while. I realized that wasn't my passion, largely because during my second year of law school also, I heard a quote that said, a society will be judged by how they treat the least of their citizens. And I'm like, well, kind of suck at that in America. I'm not very political, but I do believe that small businesses can change a lot of what is wrong in America. And so I kind of went back and I'm like, how can I help more small businesses? And ended up back in a world where I'm helping with sales and marketing for a lot of small businesses. And it has been fun. It is a passion of mine. Love helping those purpose-driven entrepreneurs be able to hire more people, help more customers, change more lives. And it's amazing. Wow. That's a wild ride. So when you exited the business, why didn't you just retire, man? Talk to me about that. I don't know a whole lot of people who exit in their 20s. Yeah. So this is where it's always funny because it's like, it's the difference between me telling you the highlights and the difference between me telling you the low light. So exiting at 10 million, I made all the mistakes you could make as a young entrepreneur, taking on bad money, having an investor that I really ended up having a not like not a great relationship with, by the time I exited, it wasn't bad for me, but it wasn't nearly as good or as sexy as the $10 million valuation sounded. And so I did go into small business consulting then. And because of like the level of success I had, I was maybe working three to six days a month. And at that time as a 24, 25 year old, I was making somewhere between 7,500 to $15,000 a month, just working two to three days a month. And so I probably could have done that for the rest of my life and been fine. There is something innate inside of me. And this kind of comes down to the second principle that I live by. So the first principle is if you go 100%, God, God will provide the course corrections. The second principle is when I was around 21 or two, 22 years old, I decided my goal in life was to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable. And so there was a point where I'm like, I'm feeling way too comfortable. I need to go outside of my comfort zone. And at that time, if you knew me, nothing could make me more uncomfortable giving my experience with lawyers and raising money and all that other fun stuff for that company than actually going and becoming a lawyer. I went to one of the premier law schools not knowing a single name of a single Supreme Court justice. And most of these kids had been dreaming of going to law school their whole entire lives. And so instantly... I was thrown into this world where I felt like I was a tiny fish in a ginormous pond and I had no idea what to do. What? So have you always been gifted? Because I don't know many people that can say that they scored 99 percentile on the LSAT. I mean, that just makes the story even crazier. 
Yeah. So I would say I have a stewardship over a lot of gifts. I'm very blessed in a lot of areas of my life that I can use to help a lot of people. But I would say one of those is, again, going 100%. So when I decided I was going to take the LSAT, I was studying 8 to 12 hours a day for a month. I was living, eating, breathing this stuff. My brain does work really fast, and it does learn those principles really quick. But it's not like I innately know those things. It's like when I focus my mind on doing something, I'm able to do it really well. And it comes from a lot of effort and a lot of focus and a lot of dedication. But I am blessed where I can actually then accomplish what I set out my mind to accomplish. So you're willing to do the work. There is some work involved. It's not just snap yeah. my fingers and it happened. Yeah. Is that a lesson for people in small business as well? Yeah. I mean, I would say that most small business owners start from a space of motivation. They had an idea. They're super motivated. They're super excited. Small business is the least sexy thing in the world. It is discipline. It is waking up every day and doing what no one else wants to do. It is doing the small things all the time. There is no giant leap and suddenly you're at 100K in revenue, a million in revenue, 5 million in revenue. It is doing the small, consistent, dumb things that no one else wants to do. It's knocking on the doors as an eight-year-old kid, making cold calls. It is figuring out how to get in front of someone that you don't have any business being in front of. It's being creative in the marketing, but then also testing that and doing it over and over again until you find something that works. And I just find that most people who start from a space of motivation, when they find out business is really all about discipline, tend to burn out pretty quickly and decide, actually, I want to be employed or I don't want to be doing this. That's interesting. So while we were at the powwow, you talked about the 20 mile march, how important that is. Can we dive into that concept and why it is kind of the secret sauce for making your business successful? Yeah. And I love that principle. Jim Collins, he's, he's one of my heroes in life. And he wrote the book, Great by Choice, where he talked about the two groups of people that were trying to be the first group to make it to the South Pole. One group varied their distance based off of conditions. They went 40 miles in good days, 20 miles in mediocre days. They'd hunker down in bad days versus a different group who went 20 miles, good days, bad days, terrible days, mediocre days. They just went 20 miles every single day. And obviously, because it's called the 20 mile march, that was the group that made it to the South Pole first. The other group all died 45 miles away from making it to the South Pole. And I'm just like, that is so much like business. The 20 mile march, I've seen that when people are committed to doing, it's not a goal. It's not an aspiration. It's not a hope. It's something that you live or die by and that you're committed to doing. When I have helped business owners set a 20 mile march and consistently live it is when you can see a lot more things accomplished. I saw a meme the other day that says we're horrible. We always think that we can do more than we can in a day, but we also tend to believe that we can do less than we actually can in a one to three year period. And I think that is so true. There's a lot of great books on that now, The Atomic Habits and The One Percenter, like changing your habits by 1% every single day. Like by the time you're a year from now, you'll be 365% better. So there's a lot of great books about that, but so many people are just trying to do it all in one day instead of just taking that 20 miles every single day. Good days, bad days, mediocre days. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. 
they often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. Love it. Where'd you learn your discipline? That's a good question. My, my discipline started when I served an LDS mission and we were, I just decided on what honestly happened was my dad, he sat me down before my mission and he said, I've never seen you work hard in your life. I think you're going to fail miserably. Oh. And I have this innate instinct in me that when someone says I'm going to fail, I'm like, I'm going to prove you wrong. There is no way that you're going to be right. And so I worked so hard. I don't think I broke a single rule. And what that required was most days. So you work six and a half out of seven days a week. And most of the time you're knocking on doors. And so for eight to 12 hours a day, I was knocking on doors in Spain, speaking Spanish, a language I did not know, but I had to learn in order to survive. And just every single day I would wake up and I would do the hard thing. And it drove during your mission, you're with a companion the whole time. It drove my companions insane. I feel bad. I feel like I should send apology notes to them now that they had to live through that experience of being my companion. But I did not falter one day. Every day I did the hard thing. And after two years, it kind of became who I was. It became, so you, you changed your, yeah. your identity shifted because of the conditions you were in or because you wanted yeah, to prove dad I, wrong or what, what yeah. was it really? Yeah, it started as a challenge for my dad. I mean, this is someone who knows me better than anyone else in the world. And he's like, I've never seen you work hard. And I'm like, I'm going to prove you wrong. But over time, it definitely shifted. I mean, you are focused on other people all day, every day on your mission. So it became a, an aspect of service and it became an aspect where I, I, for a time, I would feel guilty that I wasn't trying harder to help other people. And after time, it became a stewardship where I'm just like, I am blessed and lucky to be in a place where I can serve others. And when I'm not doing that, I'm not fulfilling my potential. And it's no longer a space of guilt, but honestly, an opportunity to serve that I feel really lucky to be able to do. Okay. Wow. Wow. Lucky to do. That almost sounds like my pleasure after somebody says thank you at Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm lucky so to help you. That's an interesting perspective. So that's true gratitude then. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's gratitude and humility. And those two things are so close in my mind. I think when I was growing up, I thought humility was thinking less of yourself. And now I really believe it's thinking less about yourself. And I would used to be able to, I used to be very self-deprecating and I still have a very self-deprecating sense of humor. But I used to think the only way to be humble was being like, I suck at this. I suck at that. I will tell you what I'm great at. And I am great at a lot of things. I recognize that almost every one of those things that I'm great at has very little to do with me and has a lot to do with the blessings in my life. And it has to do with my then ability and desire to serve others. I firmly believe that if you want to gain a talent, develop a talent, 
or become better in some area, if you can prove to God that you are going to be consistent and you're going to use it to bless other people's lives, there is zero possibility that you will not develop that. So what happens if you don't develop the talent? Oh man, you're going to make a difference anyway. So here's the thing is, I think we all innately want to be at a level Z because we think only if we're at a level Z are we finally in a position where we can serve and help others. But the truth is, if you're at a level Z, it's really hard to relate to someone at a level A or a level B or a level C. We need, to we need leaders that are a level B to help those that are a level A. We need leaders at a level C to help those that are at a level B. And so in the pursuit of developing that talent, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people that will be served by following your journey because you took the most relevant step to them, which is the next step they need to take. I think so many people are scared. Yeah. Some people, so many people don't feel like they're worthy, right? To help somebody. And all you have to do is be a step ahead of them. You don't have to be all the way at the end. You just need to be a step ahead of them and you can help somebody cross that challenge. And I'll never forget, like, being a senior in college on the football team and seeing freshmen come in and seeing how they thought about life and not being able to relate to it. And just how naive it all seemed and how silly some of the concepts and ideas they had. And it almost felt judgmental thinking about it in hindsight, but they just didn't know. Yeah. And yeah, that that's a wild concept. So for the people who feel like imposters, because there are those people that do take action, right? And mm -hmm. they go do it. And then very quickly, they start asking questions about their... the realness, the validity of them being in the space. What do you tell them, right? Because they did do something. They are helping, but they're questioning yeah. whether or not they should be. Honestly, I think you should always put yourself in rooms where you feel like an imposter. And I feel like an imposter all day, every day, because I'm in one of two rooms. I'm either in a room with people who I think are way cooler and way better and have accomplished way more than I ever have. And I'm like, what have I done to deserve being in this room? Or I'm in rooms where people are relying or depending on me or thinking I'm the smartest person that they've ever met. And I'm like, in both of those places, I feel like an imposter. And to some extent, I think the most controversial statement is to say, fake it until you make it. I don't know I where that. I fall in that. I don't really care about the arguments one way or the other way. But what I do know is that there has never been a point in my life where I felt like I've made it. And when I talk to my friends who I think are way cooler than me, I know each one of them has rooms that they go into where they feel like an imposter for the same reason. Either they feel like they're around people that they don't deserve to be around or they're giving advice to other people where they don't feel worthy to give that advice. I think it's innate. I think it's inherent in who we are. I think we're way too hard on ourselves, but I also don't always think that's the worst thing because the imposter syndrome is what consistently drives me to try to become who other people see me as being. And so I think the imposter syndrome is more a product of being around people who see a better version of yourself than you've ever seen of yourself. So I talk a lot with people I'm working with one-on-one -on, -one on 
like borrowed confidence or borrowed credibility from the person. So they see the thing in you that you can't see in yourself. And that forces you to elevate to be that person because at our core, I think everybody wants other people to like them or appreciate them or value what they add to the world. Is that kind of the same concept or no? Yeah, I think it is. And so going back to Jim Collins, he has in good to great, he has a concept of level four leaders versus level five leaders. I've on my own created a new level called the level six leader. And I think those people, just level four leaders use the window and mirror. When a level four leader sees something that goes wrong, they point out the window and they point to everyone else and say, they say, this is all your fault. When something goes right, they point to a mirror and they say, this is all your fault. Basically taking all the credit and placing all the blame on other people. Again, not political. Don't care what you think. Trump is the perfect example of a level four. It's not to say level four leaders haven't done great things. That is just the definition of a level four leader. Level five leaders use the window in the mirror in the opposite way. When something goes right, they point out the window. They give everyone else all the credit. When something goes wrong, they point in the mirror and take all the blame. I have an, a dad who was terrible at business and I have maybe some issues in, like everyone else and having him be a dad. But what I did see him consistently do is when people saw him, they would always be like, I feel like your dad's been waiting his whole life to meet me. And I'm like, what does he do different than anyone else? And I'm like, okay, he uses the window and the mirror differently. He is a window to divine love and a mirror to other people of what's best in them. And I constantly am searching to be that person and to surround myself with those people. Because in some ways, when someone is a mirror to me of what's best in me, that is very uncomfortable if I haven't accepted those areas where I'm at my best. And I really will constantly feel like an imposter. Like there's no way they could possibly see me for me. Because if they knew me the way I knew me, they would realize I'm not that great. But what I'm coming to learn experiencing that window in a mirror for other people is I'm like, oh man, I see you better than you see yourself. Or I see you the exact same way this, that you see yourself. The only difference between you and me is that I don't have any judgment for what I see. I see those mistakes that you make and I don't judge those mistakes. I'm like, man, that was perfect for your journey. I see the triumphs that you make. And instead of saying you didn't deserve those, I have no judgment for them. And I just think, man, I'm so glad that you got to experience that. And I think that's oftentimes how we feel the imposter syndrome is not from a lack of understanding ourselves or where we've been or who we are. And that other people don't understand that. It's the judgment that we place on our experiences and on our choices that make us feel like we're unworthy to do X, Y, or Z or to have X, Y, or Z. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. I just haven't, I haven't heard anybody talk about it in that way. I think those stories really illustrate the point well. So as we wrap this one up, John, I always ask a couple of questions. And so the first one is, if the listeners want to get more from you, where's the best place for them to go for that? Yeah, that's a good question. I've done pretty hard at staying anonymous my whole entire life. So best way, if you want to reach out and talk to me about anything is just email john, J-O-N, at videopower.org. That's the name of our company. And you can check out some of the cool stuff we're doing on there with YouTube as well as other marketing channels. Best way to reach out to me, I tell everyone, as long as there's an, a half an hour free on my calendar, I'm always happy to talk to anyone who needs help or support. Wow. So generous. So you're still doing service, huh? 
Yeah. Kind of my thing. (laughs) He's genuine and he actually means it, which is so rare. Okay. And then the last question I ask, and it's always the last one, is what is the one thing you want listeners to take away? I would say it all starts with action, in my opinion. I feel like the thing that is the biggest source of distress for me and helping other people is that they don't trust that if they take the action, God will provide the course corrections. There is no perfect action. There is just perfect that comes through going 100% at whatever you're doing and allowing for the course corrections to provide for themselves. The data behind this is unequivocal. So 80% of Fortune 500 companies failed in their original path to profitability. Eight out of 10 Fortune 500 companies, the biggest companies in the world, they went 100% in one direction and failed miserably, but they pivoted and found what would actually work to then create a Fortune 500 company. I always say you can't turn a parked bus, and I am 100% sure that is true. Action leads to opportunities for growth. It learn, it leads to God trusting you that you're going to take the action. And it leads to an opportunity for him to provide the course corrections that you need to be where you need to be. You need to be where you need to be. That belief in the higher power. John, thank you so much for being so generous with your time, man. You're, you're a dream catcher. And you're helping other people catch their dreams, which is probably even a bigger deal because it really digs into creating a life of significance, which we believe is the only true success. Grateful to be able to call you a friend and look forward to hanging out with you more, man, because every day yeah. we do, it's been fun. Been a pleasure. To, to the listeners, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real. <laughs>